0: turn to the book of Ruth if you would please book of Ruth while you're turning there um, Kathy mentioned it and I've already had some questions this morning Uh, I I know there are some people in our church who not only aren't on Facebook but see it as the devil's tool. so uh, (laughs) it's kind of a joke but not really um Anyway, they do a a Giving Tuesday, and we did a fundraiser through that because they match some money, and some people were asking me how much money we raised on Tuesday, and um, thanks to the generosity of those who are on The Devil's Tool, we we raised uh, $64,000 in about, yeah, it's awesome, in about 30 seconds Um, because everybody knows the game now. we got to get in early. But anyway, I just wanted to say thanks. Thank you for your generosity. You're incredible. And uh, God is good, isn't he? he All the time, right? All the time. We're doing this series called Ashes to Beauty. Ashes to Beauty because, let's be honest, all of our lives, even if you're living your best life now, so to speak, Apart from Christ, your life is really ashes. It's not not what God designed you for. It's not what you're destined for. It's incomplete. But because of what Christ has done for us, the redemption that comes through his name, he's taken the ashes of our own sin, our own existence, and turned it into something incredible something beautiful so during these four Sundays we're looking back at the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew Um, I've kind of led into this each and every week uh, because I really want you to be able to read the Bible for all it's worth Um, but every genealogy and I know you, you you're like me I when I'm reading my Bible through I get to the genealogies and it becomes skim time Right? Blah, 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 got blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm just cruising through those, those sections generally. But the genealogy of Christ in Matthew has a specific purpose. Matthew is probably being written to a Jewish audience uh, so that they can be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. There are a lot of references and ways that it's written to appeal to a Jewish audience. Uh, in Mark, you find no genealogy because Mark is generally a book of action. He just starts right off and hits a, the ground running. Uh, probably written for a Roman audience, most people believe, uh, and Roman the Roman the Romans were people of action. Um, the book of Luke is written more for a general Gentile universal audience. So the the genealogy in Luke starts with Jesus and goes backwards all the way to Adam, hooking you know kind of saying Jesus is a man he 's human uh, universal john begins he 's concerned with the deity of Christ um, that God Jesus was fully God, so if you read he in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, uh, his genealogy, so to speak, is a genealogy of Um, God the Father, God the Son, that Jesus is fully God. So they all have their purposes as you read those Gospels. And in Luke, we get this genealogy that's uniquely really Jewish. It's going back to Abraham and David. And so you get this record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. First week, we looked at Tamar and the incredible both beauty and horror of the story of Tamar. And we saw that in this, that God works in the worst circumstances to accomplish his purposes and transform our character. And again, I'm not going to rephrase the the story of Tamar and Judah, but it's, you know, it It's really hard for us to read and believe that chapter is even in the Bible. And so it's so graphic in its description. But in it, you see that God is doing what God is going to do. His purposes cannot be thwarted. And in that, he does it in such a way that it transforms who we are. Because really, that chapter in Genesis, though, it's about Tamar. In a lot of senses, it's about Judah and how God transforms Judah's character to become who Judah becomes by the end of Genesis. Then in Matthew, it goes on, and continuing the genealogy, Ram, the father of Abinadad, Abinadad, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Last week, we looked at from um, Joshua, the story of Rahab, the prostitute, uh, as she's known in almost every other passage uh, in the Bible other than this one, Rahab the prostitute, and how through this unlikely person, God is working, and that God works through people like Rahab. God works through unlikely people to do his work. And this is one of the great truths of the Bible, and hopefully one of the great truths that we grab hold of, because almost everybody at some point in their life feels like, I'm not enough. I'm not that good. What am I going to accomplish with my life? What what can I do that's going to make a difference? Here's the great news. You're perfect for that. Because that's the kind of people God uses. He uses unlikely people. He uses weak. He uses the broken. He uses those who are willing to be used to accomplish his purposes. What you have to offer God is not your great intelligence, not your massive uh, financial resources, not your family background. You have brokenness. You have the ashes of your life to lay before his feet to see that he can use, yeah, even you. He can use a person like Rahab to change the outcome in the course of history. And that really... Your current obedience, your current willingness to act through faith is much more important than your past failures. Quit hanging on to the failures of your past and allowing them to define you. Instead, take the step forward in faith and act according to how God has called you now. And God will use it in miraculous ways because God works through faith and faith in action, and action, to accomplish his destiny, his purposes, his plans. People were always talking about that you have a destiny, I have a destiny. Uh, How is that destiny accomplished? Honestly, it's not figuring out what my destiny is and then going for it. Rather, my destiny, I think, is accomplished through faith, And a daily step of acting according to that faith. And then God will work through us to accomplish his purposes. Today, going on in Matthew, looking at the third woman who's listed in this genealogy of Jesus from the book of Matthew. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth. Great book of the Bible. And again, I'm going to have to summarize the book of Ruth, and then I'm going to, t- I'm going to tell you the story, do a summary, read the scriptures, and draw out a couple of points uh, this morning. I just think it's incredible that Boaz is the son of Rahab. And we'll see his part in this story in just, in just a moment. So, in the book of Ruth, we find the, this couple named Naomi and Elimelech, And they are in the city of Bethlehem. But the city of Bethlehem and the surrounding area has a famine. And so they're forced to sell their land and move out of Bethlehem. Does anybody remember what Bethlehem means? House of bread, which is ironic, right? When you have a famine and the house of bread is, you're gone. So they go to a place called Moab. Now, Moab is, uh, it's letter number two on here. I just thought, you know, Dave threw up some maps a couple weeks ago. I wanted to be like Dave. And so I I want to put a map on the board. Hi, Dave. And so uh, Dave's in the balcony. So uh, Bethlehem is right outside of Jerusalem. I mean, it's within miles of Jerusalem. It's much closer than most of us even uh, can imagine. And so Bethlehem's right outside of Jerusalem. They moved from there to Moab. Now, Moabites were not well looked upon by the Israelites. If you remember your biblical history, um, the descendants of Moab come from Lot. So this is a whole other story, but Lot flees um, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah get burned up. Lot's wife turns around. She turns a pillar of salt Uh, Lot has a couple of daughters who are married, but the sons-in-law don't want to leave Sodom and Gomorrah, so they are toast as well. But Lot leaves with his two daughters, begins living in some caves. The daughters say to each other, you know, no one's going to accept us anymore. We don't have any children. Let's get dad drunk, sleep with him, and have some kids. Again, the Bible is graphic and ugly at times with the sin of man. Well, one of the daughters has a, a, a son named Moab, from whom the Moabites come. The other uh, daughter has a uh, uh, son named Ben-Ami, from whom the Ammonites descend. Moabites were not well looked upon by the Israelites. So Naomi and her husband, they, Elimelech, they go to Moab, and after a while, Elimelech passes away. And the two boys, the two sons, marry two Moabite girls, uh, Ruth and Orpah. Not Oprah, Orpah. Um, they marry Ruth and Orpah. And then, after a period of some years, the two sons die as well. So now you have Naomi, who's an Israelite, and you have the two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, who are Moabites. uh, Naomi hears word that the famine is... Because it's over about a 10-year period, evidently. And so Naomi gets word that now there's bread back in the land, the house of bread in Bethlehem. So she's going to move back to her hometown. And the two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah, go with her for a ways. And in Ruth, chapter 8... It says this, and Naomi said to each of her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Uh, May the Lord show kindness to you. Some people, by the way, when it says mother's home, uh, some people think Orpah and Ruth were actually sisters. Um, There's some speculation in extra-Jewish literature that they were. We don't know for sure if they were, but the way this is worded, it could be in that context. Not Not that critical, but it gives you an idea. says, may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husband's? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Now, as we read this passage, the culture starts to come through a little bit, and you're like, wow, that's just weirding me out anyway anyway. Um, the whole idea about, yeah, am I going to, if I, she had a husband and she had sons, I'm going to marry those kids. You know, it's it, 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 just socially, we just can't get our heads around it. But it's, it was the custom, as we've been looking back, back at Judah and his sons and just the Old Testament, that it was not unusual for, um, when if someone died in a family, for the brothers down the line to marry the, the widow. That, that culturally was not as strange. But what Naomi is saying is, look, I got no husband. Even if I got a husband tonight and we had children right away, are you, you going to wait 15, 20 years for them to grow up so that you can then have husbands? It's better if you go back to your own people, find a new husband, move on in life. And And she's saying, it's bitter for me. Now, this is the this is the story of the, or the brokenness really of Naomi up until this point. She's going to change her name actually to Mara when she gets back, which means bitter. Uh, and she doesn't mean I'm bitter against the world. It's just that life has given me just bitterness. My husband's dead. My sons are dead. I'm all alone. There's nothing left for, for me. Going on and reading in Ruth. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. And then this very famous passage, which is probably the most famous passage from Ruth. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. I mean, it's an incredible statement of commitment to to Naomi. I mean, she's saying, your God will be my God. Your people, my people um i i'll die where you die now now think about this again socially in context we have trouble connecting here but ruth going from being a moabite woman into the nation of israel she's going to be an outcast from the start this whole your people will be my people it ain't going to go so well you know i i'll accept your people and I, they'll be my people but the problem is your people ain't going to accept m- me You know, it's this relationship thing, it's a two-way street, right? And so she's, as an immigrant into the nation of Israel, shortly, and this is not that long after they've taken over the land, if you think Rahab was the mother of... It's within a generation. And they're really conquering the land. But Ruth is her, her commitment, her courage to leave her land And to go back with Naomi is startling. Orpah goes back. Ruth goes forward. Then we see this incredible picture of what's called the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer. And let me kind of fill you in on what takes place. Then read a passage. And then, again, we're going to draw some truths. So Ruth, Naomi, go back to Bethlehem. They move back. Now, they've got nothing. Remember, Naomi has sold her land. Her husband is dead. Maybe she's got some extended family, which we'll see. But she really has nothing. Ruth, a Moabitess, is less than nothing. She's a real outsider. So now they move back to the house of bread. The problem is they got no way to get bread. They're starving. They're, they have no job. They have no future. They have no income. This is not the land of opportunity. This is the land of closedness. So one of the things that is a uniquely Jewish practice is during the harvest time, those who are harvesting fields were to leave a little grain behind. In other words, they weren't to take every single thing. They were purposefully just to leave a little behind so that the poor and those who had no food could come into the field and get what was left so, they would have a way to feed themselves. It's like the welfare system of Israel at the time. And it was called gleaning. So, Ruth goes out and starts gleaning in the field. She starts picking up the leftovers so that she can go home and make enough food for her and Naomi, who's now called Mara, our Bitter. And so, Ruth goes in the field and she goes into this. It's an incredible picture of all the fields she goes into in all the land. It's kind of like that thing. Of all the bars in all the world, you walk in the mine. Uh, in all the all the fields of all the land, she gets into this one field, and this guy named Boaz looks up over the field and says, Hey, who is that woman over there? And somebody says to him, That's that's a Moabite woman, Ruth, who came back with Naomi. And his heart, and again, is it because Ruth is stunning looking, or is it because his mother was an outcast, or is it because there's something just drawn to? We, we don't know exactly, but it's some, for some reason, really, the way the scripture is, is, is framed, it's her courage that, uh, that attracts Boaz. It's, the, it's an incredible idea. This woman moved from Moab back here and is now doing the work of nothingness to help feed her mother-in-law who she's got real no, com- no commitment to on her own, that seems to attract Boaz to her. Boaz starts to, to leave, says to his workers, leave a little extra grain so that they'll have enough food. Ruth goes back to Naomi's house. <clears throat> Naomi said, Whoa, we had a good day. We got some good grain. And she said, Yeah. I had a- I wandered in this guy's field named Boaz, and he left, they left me some extra work. Now, Naomi understands that Boaz is a distant relative, and this is where the whole kinsman-redeemer thing comes in. Hang on just for a second. If you haven't heard this before, it's really, really, really good. So when they came into the nation of Israel, every single family was given a portion of land. And if you remember, in Judaism, the land was everything, right? So there, there was the idea of God. The promise of Abraham was, I'll make you a great people, uh, through all the nations will be blessed, and I'll give you a land, a home. And so now they have a home, they have a land, and every single family got some land. If something happened, a tragedy in the life, or a famine, and you had to sell the land, or the land got taken, or something happened... There was this idea that a relative could buy the land back for you. He would have first claim on it. So let's say that I got really um, um, broke and poor, and um, Craig bought the land from me. And so he's got my land. But let's say that my brother, TV, who's a distant relative of mine, says, "Uh, I want to buy the land back for my distant brother Bart. So Craig would actually have to sell the land back to him. He wouldn't give it to him, but he'd have to sell it back to him. And TV would be seen as what's called a kinsman redeemer. He would buy the land back for our family, our distant family. Now, there are some caveats to this deal uh, that are going to be catchy later on. So, if there's a guy who can buy the land back, he only not only has to buy the land, but he has to take the distant family as his family. So now, if he buys the land, he's, he would have to take the wife, the mother-in-law, the whole kit and caboodle, right? So you don't get just the land, you get the whole family. So what's happened is, Ruth has wandered into one of the fields of her distant relatives, but she doesn't even know it. Naomi's relative, a kinsman redeemer. And so, in chapter 4, coming up, what happens is Ruth... I'm I'm skipping chapters, I'm sorry. Please go read Ruth 2 and 3. Um, because it's, it's pretty interesting. Naomi says, You've got a kinsman redeemer here, and his name is Boaz. So, what she tells Ruth to do is during the harvest time, when Boaz gets drunk, just stay with me, when Boaz gets drunk and he falls asleep, you go in and you lay your skirt or garment out over his feet and you lay down next to him. You're like, oh, This is getting really strange. Hang on. So she does that, which is kind of like a come-hither kind of thing. You know, kind of of a flirty kind of action. And so when he wakes up, she proposes to him, basically. He says, okay. He says, yes, I'll take you. And uh, here's the problem. He's going to become a kinsman redeemer, but there's actually one person closer to Naomi than Boaz is. Are you staying with me? How am I doing on the story? Are you following? So there's one guy who's actually a little closer to Naomi and Ruth than Boaz is. So he has to negotiate. So Boaz says, "I'm going okay, to be the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to buy the land back, and I'm going to take Ruth. I'll take Naomi." So he goes out to the city gate and he waits for this one guy who can buy the land back. So the one guy who we don't have his name, we don't know who he is. He comes to the gate. Boaz is there and says, hey, listen, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but Naomi's back in town, Elimelech's wife, Elimelech's dad, Naomi's here, are you interested in becoming the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and buying the land back? And the guy says, yeah, I'll do it, I want the land. Boaz says, well, there's one complicating factor, if you take Naomi You also have to take Ruth, the Moabite woman, as your wife. Which, again, is not an... Now, here's the thing. If he takes Ruth and takes her as his wife and sleeps with her and she has children, not only is the land he redeemed for her, the heirs, but so is his land. Are you following? So to take Ruth is going to put his inheritance, if he has any other wives or any other children, at risk. So he says, on second thought, I don't think so. I'm going to pass. And Boaz says, all right, then I'm going to redeem him. And they exchange sandals and go on their way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a witness to this deal, here you take my sandal, I'll take yours. And the elders and all those at the gate said, we're witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing at Ephraton, be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago. Incredible blessing that actually comes from all that Tamar did. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Wow, I just want to We're going to come to this, but this whole thing is a picture of Jesus. You know that, right? The whole idea of the kinsman, redeemer, we're lost. We've lost everything in our sin. We're we're broken. We've got nothing. We're begging for scraps. And Christ came and redeemed us as our brother and saved us. Goes on and says, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth. This is after she's given birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. It, it's just an incredible story, right? Right? The whole thing, which I've taken forever to line out for you, because it's so good. It's just an incredible story. There's so many tears and pictures to this glorious story. Let me just draw a couple of truths about how God works. Because in case you haven't noticed, that's what we've been looking at through these various weeks. How God works through the ashes of our lives to bring something beautiful out of it, right? That's what we've seen all along. The first thing I want you to see is this, that God works through relationships. God works through relationships. We are in an age and a time where, you know, this 2020 stuff that's been going on, relationships have become more valuable and yet harder to maintain. I mean, again, we've got at least half of our at least have more like two-thirds of our church is now online. And we're glad you're online, we're glad you're watching, and we miss you. Because there's nothing about relationship that's as valuable as presence. Not, not presents like Christmas presents, but presents like we're in this together. Like seeing you face-to-face, being able to talk to you and pray with you and stand with you. We see this in the life of Ruth when she says to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. God works through the relationship. The miracle would not of the story, so to speak, what happens in this story would never have happened if Ruth and Naomi were not as close as they were. The relationship, the commitment. And this is, when Ruth is saying this, There is a, you can sense the love that she has for Naomi, right? This is not like, you know, I got to do this. I've been tolerating Naomi all these years. My mother-in-law, I me mean, think about it. Would you give up everything to move with your mother-in-law? I mean, there's something loving in that relationship. A true love that then says, I'm going to stay with you till I die. A time aspect. There's commitment to it. Where you go, I go. Your people, my people. And if you think about it, to me... These elements of love and time and commitment, they equal change in people's lives. If you're going to be in relationships with people, there's something beyond loving tolerance. There's love, commitment, and time. Those will equal change. I read this story about a... Excuse me, I didn't even read this story. I was at a funeral where someone spoke and talked about change coming as a result of the time and love that people had invested in them, this person who had deceased. So all of us probably are here today in church because someone invested in us. Really, very seldom do you just kind of show up at a church and say, yeah, this is great, I love I mean, somebody invited you, probably, and you have the opportunity to invest in relationships around you. Again, I know that during this day and age, 2020, and everything that's going on, it's a little more challenging, but you have relationships, special relationships that God has placed in your life. To me, those are how God works. He still works through relationship I've said this a hundred times. I'm not going to preach this sermon too, but Christianity is not in essence a religion. Religion says this is what I have to do to get to God. But rather it's about a relationship, a God who came to earth, who died for us so that we could enter the family of faith. It's about a relationship. And if you keep viewing Christianity or if you view Christianity as something, as a set of rules or a set of principles or mores or uh, to be followed. That is not Christianity. Christianity is about the fact that Christ indwells you and you have a relationship with Father God and you can come boldly before the throne of grace to ask for help in your time of need, that the presence and power of God actually infills you through the personal work of the Holy Spirit because God works through relationships. All right. Second is this, God works through the difficult and the mundane. God works through the difficult and the mundane. By mundane, I mean ordinary. One thing you will not find in the book of Ruth is a miracle. Up until now, remember, Ruth is like, I don't know, how many books in the Bible? Six, seven, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So, I mean, it's not very deep in the Bible. First book that you're going to come to that has no miracles in all of the Bible. Because it's just life. It's difficult. Death, birth, famine, trying to get food, all of that kind of stuff. Woody Allen once wrote it and gave a speech to graduates. He said, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. That's the way we see life. Sometimes, some of you didn't read back. It's funnier than your, maybe it's just because it's Woody Allen. I don't know. But it leaves a to total despair, and hopelessness. The other road is to total extinction. That's the way people view life. These are my two choices, hopelessness or death. but God works through the difficult and the mundane to change things. I mean, even this whole deal with Ruth, we know that all things, really? Do you really think this? That God works in all things? For the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose? Listen, Ruth, Ruth is facing death. I mean, the death of a husband, Death of a father-in-law, leaving the people, going here. God works through all things to accomplish his purposes. I know my life. I know your lives, some of it, but you even know it at a deeper level. That you look at some things and events in your past and you say, Can God really work through that? And I want to say, probably more than you can imagine. God is working through the difficult and the mundane to accomplish His purposes. Receive His work in your life. Here's the final point. Is that God works through hurting and powerless people to accomplish His purposes. He he works through hurting and powerless people to accomplish His purposes. Do you remember the stories in the Lord of the Rings where the hobbits are looking for someone to help them and they're told to go to this pub and look for this particular guy and they wander into this pub and at the back of the room is this one guy who's he's called a ranger and his name is Strider and he's drinking at the pub's and pub and the Hobbits, for those of you who don't know Lord of the Rings, I don't know why you don't after all these years have come to fullness, but uh, <laughs> anyway, they, they really pay him no mind in the, in the book, and he's, they, they just don't see anything. But it turns out that this guy, Strider, is actually the king who can save the land in disguise. He's, he's been hurt. He's been cast out, so to speak. He's been wandering the land for years, not really accomplishing his destiny. And to me, this is a bridge from the last point to this one. He doesn't look like anything. You would never dream he was the king. He just looks like an ordinary, mundane guy. And at the same time, he is, in some ways, he feels hurting and powerless. But God's going to use him to transform things. In the middle 1860s, uh, a guy named uh, William Hurst Henley. William Hurst Henley um, got tuberculosis, got some disease, uh, His foot got infected. He's in his early 20s. He has to have an amputation. this is the early 18, middle 1800s. Uh, amputation from his knee down he had just been accepted into oxford um, but from his hospital bed he writes what becomes a very very famous poem called invictus which ends with this stanza it matters not how straight the gate how charged with punishments the scroll and he's been through some up until this point. He goes on and says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, for many of us, I've heard this poem read a number of times, and it's very moving, and it makes you want to jump up and storm out of things, you know, kind of go take control. And, and again, I, I don't know about you, but as parents, I've tried to raise my kids to say, look, um, I think I even said this the other day to, to, to Olivia who's here that, that I, I, I think perseverance takes you a lot further than intelligence. You know, I think that doing a job and doing a job well will take you much further. The people who achieve that I know, you know, my dad used to say to me, you know, you are, you are educated well beyond your intelligence. And I, I think that's true. Uh, but I'm a persevering pe- person, and I think my ki- I've tried to instill in that. But there's this failure, if we're not careful, to think that our perseverance will actually make us the captains of our souls. There's this American ideal, if we're not ca- careful, that you can become the best whatever you are supposed to be by working it out yourself. And I want to say that God works through the powerless and the hurting and the broken to accomplish his purpose." I mean, really, there's no one as powerless as Ruth. I mean, she has no power in this land. But God uses her. Praise The women say to her when um, she has a child through Boaz, praise, she's, they're talking to Naomi, "'Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you "'without a kinsman redeemer.'" May become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, the powerless one, has become better than seven husbands. Seven is the number of completion. That's the blessing they're speaking over Ruth. God has taken her commitment, her love, her dedication, and has changed it to the point where she has become more valuable to Naomi than seven sons. She's given birth. God uses the good news of the gospel and the kinsman redeemer of Jesus Christ to change who we are, to transform us into something spectacular. That's the message we have for the world. Not that we're the masters of our faith, the captains of our souls, but that we are a broken and powerless people apart from Jesus. It says in Corinthians, At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. If I could say one message to the church today, I would say this. This is the message we have to share to the world. Come back to God. Everything else is really like... Borrow the phrase from Kansas. It's like dust in the wind. It matters not. It matters not. Other than we once regarded Christ from a human standpoint. Now we know him as a brother. Now we know God our father. Relationship through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything else pales in comparison. And we should be. We have one mission. We are to represent him to the world that's it. We're his ambassadors. Whatever else you think your life may be about, and there are other things I know they're about, those have to take a distant second place to the message of being Christ's ambassador to the world. Because I think what Ruth teaches is is that God works through relationships. He works through the difficult and the mundane. He works through hurting and powerless people to accomplish his purposes. I mean, think about this. Ruth goes with Naomi, becomes the great-grandmother to Israel's greatest king. Not only did she get some food, not only did she get her land back, not only did she get a child, but she got a child who became... Not only in the line of David, but in the line of the king of kings and lord of lords. By the way, just a side point, which I find very interesting. My friend Dave reminded me of this week. I went and looked it up. In Jewish literature, Orpah goes back and has children as well. This is extra biblical. Goes back and has children. Really, really, really big children. Four. Four one of whom is gonna face a little shepherd boy in a field someday. According to Jewish tradition, Orpah becomes the mother of Goliath. Ruth becomes the mother of great great the great grandmother of David. I don't know if it's true or not, but it makes for a great story, doesn't it? <laughs> Because God works through the hurting and the powerless to accomplish his purposes. You may be here today saying, "I," again, what have I got to offer? What you've got to offer is just the ashes of your life at the feet of Jesus and he'll do something incredible with them. If in faith you'll take the next step that he's told you to take. Do what he's calling you to do. And it'll change us and possibly history forever. Lord, we thank you for the story of Ruth and just all that she shows us. Lord, we, sometimes, Lord, I, I confess, I'm waiting for a miracle to happen. When in fact, you're just saying to me, come to the Father. Come into relationship with me. Which is a miracle in itself, but at the same time, Lord, you're you're choosing to work through the difficult and mundane junk of my life to make something incredible happen. So, Lord, today I pray for all of us that we would, in our relationship with you, we would be so filled with your glory and power and your presence that we would go out into the world saying, Come back to God. Come with me. Let's run to the Father. Let's run into the presence of the Lord. Let our lives be changed. May you make something incredible with them today. Lord, we bless you and praise you and glory in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and let's just...